Welcome back, everyone, to part three of our interview with author David Beers as we covered the story, Immunity for Murder. And now we're eight months from the murder of two-year-old Lyric and Veronica Taft. The focus of most of the investigation is being arrested for murder. David, welcome back. Yeah, thanks, John. I'm glad to be back and uh, continue the story. Yeah, fill us in on the story. We've got DeLucha and Mullen uh, eager for uh, an arrest here and a conviction. So how does it go from here? Like you just said, eight months had passed, and ever since about 48 hours after this all happened, they're they're zeroing in on Veronica as as the one who committed this brutal murder against her son. In February of 2011, late February, Veronica moved out of Binghamton and went up to live with a friend near Syracuse, New York, because she'd been she'd been getting threatened by Chucky, and he had actually broken into her apartment and, and threatened her and threatened to kill her and beat her up. And uh, it, it was a pretty nasty encounter. Police were called, but they didn't do anything. She had bruising on her knees and her neck and her arms. And, you know, like I said, he, he, he broke in and, and threatened her. So as a result, she, uh, she left town and, and went to live with a friend in Syracuse. And she stayed up there until she was arrested. She would only come back into town once every other week for the one-hour visitation with her children, her surviving children at DSS. And uh, they were only one-hour visitation. So she would come down on the bus or her friend would drive her down. And then September 1st, the police uh, checked in with, uh, they'd filed a felony complaint and got a warrant for her arrest. They called CPS to find out the next time she was going to be in town. And when she came in, uh, they were waiting for her. So as soon as she finished her visitation with her children and walked out the door, uh, she was arrested. So they processed her, took her for an arraignment. The uh, judge you know, entered a not guilty plea on her behalf, and she was sent to jail. About a week later, uh, she was indicted. Case went to a grand jury. She was indicted for murder and manslaughter and I believe six uh, misdemeanor charges of uh, endangering the welfare of a child. You reviewed that complaint. What was it that stuck out, that jumped out at you, that wasn't accurate? Yeah, there was a couple things. Uh, one, of the, one of the things was they, they got the date wrong. You know, they, they, they claimed that this happened on the, on the 30th, which it did. But, but they claimed that it was Veronica, and, and she, she wasn't there on the 30th to, to, have, to have killed Lyric when they claimed she did, because they were claiming that she killed them before she went to work, which would have been the 29th. So that was one thing. But I, I'm sure that they, you know, they can amend their date. But probably the bigger thing was they were claiming falsely that Veronica got angry with her son and while she was disciplining him, picked him up and slammed him into the wall, causing his injuries, which wasn't true. And they knew it because they had already examined the hole in the wall and found no evidence of anything. And they already knew from both Veronica and Chucky that Chucky was the one who had put the hole in the wall by punching it with his fist. But now now they're claiming that uh, the hole was caused by Veronica slamming Lyric's head into the wall. It just didn't make any sense. So that that was wrong. But that's what that was what was contained in the in the felony complaint that they used to request the arrest warrant. 
And then that felony complaint was showed to the Binghamton City Court judge, right? And then he issued an arrest warrant, charged her with murder in the second degree. Right. Who was Deanna Bryant? How did she factor into this? Deanna Bryant. Deanna Bryant was a young uh, teenager, like 17, friend of Veronica. Not sure how they met. But she was a she was a frequent babysitter for Veronica for a couple of months before she uh, met Chucky, and she would babysit the kids. And uh, Veronica said she 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 loved the kids, loved to babysit, and the kids loved her. And I, I didn't put too much emphasis on on Deanna Bryant at the time, but then when I'm reading through some of the discovery materials, I found out that Deanna had been interviewed like three different times. Uh, by the police, and she, she, of course, she told them about her relationship with Deanna and, and babysitting and that type of thing. But she'd also told them that her her mom didn't like Veronica, so she wasn't allowing her to to spend any time with her. But but that didn't stop her. You know, she kept she kept calling Veronica because she she liked Veronica and liked liked the kids, so she stayed in touch with her. Deanna had also told the police about Jesse Noel that Veronica had been in a relationship with him for a while. Uh, so, the, so the police you know, knew all this about Jesse Knoll ahead of time, even before, they, before Jesse Knoll got arrested in, in June, they, they'd found out about her relationship with Jesse back when they interviewed Deanna back in March or, or sooner. But, so I don't know why they didn't talk to Jesse Knoll sooner, but whatever, they didn't talk to him till, till uh, he was arrested in June. Then they interviewed her a third time, you know, just seeking for more information. They, they were asking her about Veronica, how she disciplined the kids, and she didn't offer anything in, incriminating. Uh, she said, you know, Veronica would uh, discipline them at times. Sometimes she'd hit them with a spoon, but never, never hard enough to leave an injury. She, nothing she was ever concerned about. But uh, the, the interesting thing was, uh, and, I, and I learned this later, because uh, about two months, less, less than two months, I believe, uh, after Veronica was arrested, Deanna Bryant uh, is found dead in a friend's apartment. And we talk, we're talking about a 17-year-old that died under very suspicious circumstances. And there was three other adults living there that were present at the time, but none of them knows anything. And one of them just happened to be Chucky's stepbrother, Jamel. So, you know, my, my suspicious mind's telling me, you know, what's he doing here? You know, what, what's, what's going on? So, but because, because Deanna Bryant was a possible uh, witness in the Veronica's case, you know, we received some discovery material from the police about Deanna Bryant's death investigation. But it was very vague, and it, it wasn't the complete report. It was just a preliminary report that we got. Uh, but it was interesting uh, some of the things that were in there, and who was present, and uh, how she was found, and they didn't find any uh, other other than some marijuana residue. Uh, there was no evidence of any drug use, no no drug paraphernalia. Uh, Deanna was a kind of a troubled child, according to her mother. She was a runaway. She she'd been assigned a probation officer because she was on a she had a pins petition against her, a person in need of supervision. And she had just finished uh, rehab for alcohol use, but she'd been released early to go back to college. So her, her death was very suspicious. 
And the, the police report, like I said, was very vague. But, but one of the interesting things was there was another man there, in addition to Jamel, uh, his name was Shaquan William, Williams, I think it was. So I said, who's this guy? You know, why is he there? Because these guys are quite a bit older than, than Deanna. You know, and why, so why are they there? And it turns out they're both, both drug dealers. And then, of course, Jamel being there was real suspicious. And, and I found out later from a reliable source that he was actually a suspect in uh, Deanna's death, but they, that he'd been granted immunity because they needed him to testify against Veronica. So, so it was rather kind of a bizarre story. I ended up talking to Deanna's mom to learn a little bit more about her. Her mom had been called to the scene that night when she was first found. And, uh, but other than that night, the, she never heard back from the police as to how she died or what their investigation revealed. So even to this day, she doesn't know what, what the real outcome was. There was never any final report. We even filed a FOIL request when I was writing the book to look for more information and it just wasn't there, uh, or at least they didn't disclose it. But the interesting thing she told me was, even though she hadn't heard from the police, she did hear from the, the uh, doctor who did the autopsy to find out that she had died from a massive overdose of Oxycontin, more than four times the lethal dose. <laughs> and, and of course her mom said, you know, Deanna didn't like taking drugs. You know, even, even aspirin, she said, I, I couldn't even get her to take an aspirin. She said, I got all kinds of drugs at, at home that she, she never touched. She said she, she just didn't like taking drugs. So that, that made me even more suspicious as to what may have really happened. And, and when I shared that with, uh, but, you know, backing up just a little bit, and that's kind of the important part. Shortly after Veronica moved to Syracuse, she got a call from Deanna and said that she uh, had something very important to tell her, but didn't want to talk about it on the phone. And Veronica said, you know, I, I can't talk about it right now. I, I can't get down there, till, but I'll be down there uh, when I see my kids on September 1st. So I'll, I'll, I'll meet you afterwards and, and you can, we can talk. So she agreed to that. But as fate would have it, that was the day she got arrested. So she never found out what it was that Deanna wanted to talk about. It's probably something that Jamila told her, right? Yeah, probably. That's that's my guess. And uh, and uh, the the other thing was uh, her mother had 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 a conversation with Deanna just the day before she was found dead, and she was crying, upset. And when her mother asked her what what it was all about, she said, "You know, you wouldn't understand," and, and just left it at that. So you know, those two things. Uh, kind of troubled me as as far as you know what she knew or 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 maybe what she had heard and and maybe uh word got out that she was going to say something and she had to be silenced very very suspicious so that's the story behind uh Deanna moving on to the grand jury about a week after she'd been arrested a panel of grand jurors was selected to hear her to hear Veronica's case Yes. I wanted to ask you, first of all, the, the impression I got from that was that DeLuccia spent an inordinate amount of time trying to move that time of death earlier so he could put it on Veronica's shoulders. That seemed to be not only critical for the grand jury, but critical for the eventual trial 
and everything else. It, it's just, it was one of those factors that the prosecutors worked so, so hard. In fact, putting pressure on the, on the Dr. Turgeon, who provided the results of the autopsy, to actually basically <laughs> deny his professional experience and admit that, yes, it's possible that it could have occurred eight hours before we thought it did. Uh, they really had him twisted. Uh, that seems to be a lot of the effort put on by the prosecutors to try and move that date earlier was really, again, a shame and, again, a huge injustice uh, done yeah, there. Yeah, but no. that's, that's how it works, right? I wanted to ask yeah. you not only about that, but I wanted to ask you what isn't allowed? What evidence or testimony isn't allowed in a grand jury testimony? And where could you have gone with that? How many times were you frustrated because it, it couldn't go where you wanted it to go. <laughs> well, that, that happened a lot. I mean, uh, you know, the prosecution has a lot of leeway. And then the, the defense, for the defense, sometimes it's an uphill battle trying to get something in. But you're, but you're right about the, uh, the, the time of death issue was, was crucial. That, that was one of the biggest hurdles they had to overcome was because Dr. Terzian had estimated the time of death between 3 and 4 a.m. How, how do we... How do we accuse Veronica Taft now uh, unless we find a way to push back the time of death to a time before she went to work, which would mean like six hours or more. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, that's exactly, uh, that was exactly his strategy. And he, he walked through that with Dr. Terzian, who, who pretty much gave him what he wanted. You know, and, you know, the bizarre thing that, uh, about his testimony, John, was the... Uh, his willingness to uh, make a decision based on assumptions or possibilities. You know, and, and, there, and there was two things about the possibility that really jumped out at me. One was, you know, he, he admitted or testified that it was, one of them was, uh, it was within the realm of possibility. And, and, the, and, and the other one uh, he was questioned about by Delusia, was, he, and he agreed to it that it was within the bounds of possibility, you know. And so what does that mean? You know, a lot of things are possible. Did you uh, ever run into a Tersian again in any other trials? Or was that just a one time? No, I had issues with him before. He's, you know, he's, I, I, I think I wrote this in the book. He's very, he's always been very pro-police. You know, and that's not always a bad thing. But, uh, you know, when you go above and beyond your expertise to, to help the cause, you know, that's, that's not being professional. And he did it in, he did it in another case I worked on. And in my opinion, it was another injustice where where he actually uh, kind of midstream changed his opinion. And he went from uh, uh, accidental drowning to uh, asphyxiation and, hmm. and called instead of an accident. Now he's calling it a murder and, uh, and without any medical evidence to back it up. That, that that was troubling for me. So what was the result of the grand jury? Well, after all the testimony was in and they, and they call, you know, they called the. Uh, you know the cry ladies and Dr. Terzian and the investigators, and uh, in the end, you know they they indicted her for uh, murder, manslaughter, and and all of those uh, separate incidents of uh, endangering the welfare of a child, which was getting the grand jury to believe uh, the cry ladies, you know, without any evidence to the contrary uh, regarding their unfounded reports. So she was uh, she was arraigned on the indictment. Again, uh, not guilty plea entered on her behalf. Bail was set at 100,000 cash or 200,000 property bond. 
but you know, bail wasn't ever an option for Veronica. She didn't have a, a anything, so she went to jail to await trial. The interesting thing, though, after she was arraigned, you know, shortly after she was sent to jail, uh, Dave Butler, her attorney, gets a call from Jesse Noel, inquiring about bail, feeling to get a bit guilty. I'll bet. We'll return. We'll return with David Beers and Immunity for Murder in Part 3, right after these sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So now the defense of Veronica begins, David. And what what was your situation and involvement here? And, and in the days that weeks that followed the grand jury, you were to spend painstaking hours getting up to speed on every aspect of the case. Explain exactly how... You, you put that together as defense. And your, what were your most satisfying moments and what was the most frustrating part of that? Uh, most of them were frustrating, but uh, yeah, there were some satisfying moments. So my first involvement started shortly after Veronica was arrested because attorney, her attorney started getting the discovery material and going through it. And, and he knew he recognized some problems right away, many of which we've already discussed. So he called me. I, I'd worked with him before. We had a good working relationship, and uh, he said, hey, "I need your help." So I agreed to take the case, and uh, he started making copies of all the material for me to go through, and I did all that. And you know, ordinarily, I think I wrote in the book. You know, one of the first places you usually start is with with the accused, but but here I kind of wanted to see what some of the other players would say first. So I I reached out to some of those others, uh, including. Uh, her mom, you know, she she was a good source of information, you know. And going back to, uh, you, you talked about Veronica's demeanor, you know, what it would be like if she had done this, you know, what, it, you know, would would it be recognized uh, as her behavior being any different by her coworkers or or people that knew her? So so in that regard, uh, I I talked to Hope Taft, her mom, and because she had talked to Veronica that night, Veronica had called her from work. And she said, you know, she said, I know Veronica pretty well. And she said, you know, I didn't notice anything unusual at all. She said, if something had been wrong, uh, I would have known. And, mm-hmm. her, and, her, and her best friend said the same thing. Chelsea uh, Snyder, lifelong friend of hers, uh, she had talked to her that night as well. And she said the same thing. I've known Veronica all my life. I know all the kids. I was present during their birth. Uh, I've been to her house. I know how she interacts with her kids. You know, if she'd done something like this, I would have known something was wrong. So that was kind of reassuring for me uh, and reaffirming that you know she had nothing to do with this. 
Hope was taken directly to BP to Binghamton Police Department headquarters, right? Rather than the hospital. Yeah, you know, yeah, she was. I mean, initially they were going to take her over to the hospital to be with with Veronica, uh, but then they they just suddenly shifted gears and went right to the station because they needed her help uh, with the kids. You know, CPS had requested that that she come there because she was going to you know uh, take custody of the children. I, I interviewed uh, Max Rodriguez, who was uh, the friend of Chucky, one of the one of the ones that he had talked to when he was on the phone in the interrogation room. You know, one of the interesting things I learned from him was that uh, when when he left that night, when Chucky left his place that night, they, he'd been there earlier that day playing video games, which was which was their kind of their routine. But when he left there that day to go over to Veronica's to babysit, just before he left, uh, he said uh, he said I. I for obvious reasons, I wouldn't tell the police this, but just so you know, I gave him 10 bags of heroin, and, and he was going to sell them for me, and I have no idea where they are. So I said, well, what'd he say? <laughs> All he said was, oh, the police probably got him. But, but the police didn't get him. They, uh, there was nothing on their evidence log. So that probably explained why Chucky, even though he had been told before he was released that day not to go back, to Veronica's apartment because it was a crime scene and it's off limits. But what does he do? He goes over there and, and waits outside until the police were done. And then he goes up and uh, th there was still a patrol officer there at the scene and uh, she, she consults with the other investigators and the next thing you know, she's turning over the apartment to him. And, and it wasn't even his apartment. So I think the, the reason he was so anxious to get back in there was to uh, recover his heroin, wherever he stashed it. Veronica's mother, Hope, turned out to be a very good witness for the defense, did she not? Uh, and what happened when you showed her the photographs of the clothing that Lyric had been wearing that morning? And what other insights did she give you based on those photographs? Yeah, Hope, Hope was a real good witness, very supportive of her daughter. She's a lot like her daughter, very similar uh, character, very strong-willed feisty but anyway um yeah she'll, so she'll veronica called her that morning at work uh hope worked as a uh an aide uh at another hospital and all she heard was you know lyric was blue and you need to get her over here right away so she she ran over there as quickly as she could but by the time she got there veronica had just left to go to the hospital so she's there talking to chucky a little bit he's not saying much and then she introduces herself to the police, tells her who she is, and you know, it, you know, offers to help with the other kids. So they take her upstairs, and she goes through the house looking for clothes and other things the kids are going to need. And then they take her over to the station. And, of course, they're, they're telling, she's hearing all kinds of bad things, you know, that whoever did this, you know, was, was kicking him around like a soccer ball. And, uh, you know, he, he'd been beaten before, you know, so she was she was pretty disturbed about what had happened. But but later I, I interviewed Hope probably three times. And at, at some point I, I actually took the pictures, uh, the police pictures of Lyric's clothing and showed them to her. And she, she recognized the clothing. And, and I said, you know, this is what Lyric was found in that morning <laughs> and, and, and followed up with, you know, would, would Veronica ever put her kids to bed in street clothes? She said, nah, never. She said, yeah, maybe a, maybe a t-shirt in the summertime, but never street clothes. 
I said, okay. So I said, what were the other kids wearing that morning? And she said, they were in their pajamas. That's why I needed to find some other clothes for them. So, so that kind of reaffirmed to be that the whole issue regarding what Lyric was wearing was just overlooked. Uh, that would have been a real good question for Veronica or Chucky to know what Lyric was wearing that night before she left to work. But that just never came up. Then when I talked to Veronica about that, like I mentioned earlier, she, she, she had no memory of what he was wearing that morning. All she saw was the injuries and the, he's not breathing and he's cold, so she couldn't remember. But later she said, he would have been in his pajamas. I, I know, I put him in pajamas. They're, they're always in their pajamas. Uh, but now the pajamas are missing. Uh, because she, she asked her mother uh, if she'd ever found Lyric's pajamas when she was looking for the other kids' clothes. She said no. And, and, and she never found Havine's uh, pink Barbie comforter either. So that started to resonate with me that you know something's wrong here. Uh, the, the, these missing items could, could very well explain or at least help explain what may have happened. Hope was also very useful in pointing out Veronica's neighbors and why they were at her throat so much yeah. and what they had. Yeah, she, yeah, she really, she knew all the details about uh, the, the problems Veronica was having with some of her so-called friends and neighbors. Uh, you know, some of them were stealing from her, stealing her rent money and her MP3 player. And uh, one of them got caught shoplifting and Veronica covered for her so she wouldn't get in trouble. So, so she, had, she had nothing good to say about them. Uh, and she said they were nothing but trouble. And, uh, and so she knew all about the, the false allegations. She, she talked to CPS before. So, and, and, you know, and when I questioned Veronica about all of those things, she, she elaborated even further about the problems she was having with these, with these other women. And, and, and she said, you know, CPS came out and they, they told me that it was malicious. It was, uh, uh, vindictive and, and they, and these incidents were deemed not credible. And, and she said they drug tested me and I never tested positive. So, so all of the allegations that they that they'd filed, none none of them were were ever substantiated. What did you learn in your first interview with Veronica that you had admitted there that you weren't sure what to expect, or what your first impression would be? What was your first impression, and how did that interview go? How important was it to you? Well, that was a real important interview. I, uh, I started to work on the, her case like in October of 2011. But I didn't interview Veronica till the springtime at the jail. Uh, she knew I was coming. She just didn't know when. But yeah, I didn't know what my first impression would be. I mean, I'd, I'd watched her in her videotaped interviews. And uh, uh, so I had a pretty good idea, you know, what she looked like and that type of thing, type of character. Uh, but I was actually impressed with her. You know, she'd been in jail for, I think, eight months. Yeah, probably. She'd probably been in jail in uh, eight months. So she'd had a lot of time to think about what had happened, and she just kind of opened up and, and told me everything. She asked a lot of good questions and, and answered all of my questions spontaneously, looked me right in the eye. Yeah, I, I, I was impressed with I was impressed how intelligent she really was because she was asking a lot of good questions. It was, it was a real good interview. We covered, we covered a lot of things, and I went back on other occasions and, and to follow up, and she was always... Uh, receptive to uh to me being there so we, we had a we had a good rapport i, I like 
Yeah, she gave you she she gave you some very level-headed information that it it did take her months to be able to calm down and sort it out in her mind as to exactly what happened. Yeah. I'm going to read a, a section of her what, of what she told you. You recorded that interview, yeah. and this is her word for word. Finally, she says, "I decided to go and see what the holdup was. When I looked in the door, he, meaning Chucky, wasn't near Zoe, but was standing over by Lyric and Amira, holding Lyric's Transformers blanket. When he saw me, he sort of." He sort of froze and was acting a little sneaky. At first, I thought maybe his brother was still there, and he was hiding him. So I asked if his brother was still here, and he said no. I stepped over and looked into the game room to check. When I turned back, he was putting the door up in front of the kids' room, which is something we don't ordinarily do. So I asked him why he was putting the door up, and he said, Oh, so the kids don't bother you. I just accepted that and headed back to my bedroom to lay down. He came in right after me and stood there and made this big sigh, as if he was about to say something, but didn't. He then came over and started rubbing my shoulders. That was strange, too. But again, I was so tired, I didn't pay much attention, and just rolled over and fell asleep. I'm not even sure how long I slept, but when I woke up, I looked over, and he was just lying there, staring at the ceiling. I then heard the girls talking in their room, and since he was fully awake, I said, Why haven't you let them out? So I started to roll out of bed to go get the kids myself, when all of a sudden, he just flew over me and headed towards the kids' room. Now that's detail, 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 the kind of stuff that she could not have provided early on. Exactly. And I, and I, and I made reference to that, that you know, she, was, she was traumatized by what happened, and, and she actually told me during that first interview that, and she admitted, she said, you know, my mind may not have been in the right place at the time. Yeah, no one. And, and uh, anybody who's familiar with someone who's gone through a traumatic situation would understand that. But she said, you know, now that I, I've been, cause I, I said to her, I said, you've probably gone over this a thousand times in your mind. And she said, well, you got that right. <laughs> and she said, but but now I, I, I can remember things that I, I couldn't remember at the time. I told her I wasn't surprised. And so she offered those things that, that some of those things we've already talked about, like, Chucky already being in his sleep clothes or his street clothes instead of his sleep clothes. So when she arrived and, uh, you know, not you know, putting up the door over the kid's room, uh, which is something they didn't ordinarily do. And, and when she was standing there watching the EMTs do CPR, she remembered uh, him trying to rub her shoulder. And, and she just said to him, you know, get away from me, you know, and because and, and, she didn't remember those things at the time. And, and, and I'm not surprised because that's, that's been my experience in other cases where there's been memory loss or confusion because of the trauma. One of the most moving parts of your story here with regard to Veronica was one of your interviews. And we briefly touched on this before regarding the SpongeBob pajamas. Yeah. But you had said to her, do you remember or can you say for sure what Lyric was wearing before you went to work? And she said, yeah, sure. He was in his PJs, his yellow SpongeBob PJs. All the kids were in their PJs. They're always in their PJs before I go to work. I said, so just to clarify, when you changed his diaper before you went to work, he was already in his pajamas? Definitely, she said. Then asked, what's this all about? I said, I'll explain in a moment, but let me ask you this. Did you ever put the kids to bed in their street clothes? She replied, no, never. They always wear their pajamas to bed. Then quickly added, wait a minute. 
Are you trying to tell me that Lyric wasn't wearing his pajamas? I nodded and then showed her the photos. As soon as she recognized his clothing, she became quiet and her eyes teared up as she continued staring at the photos. Finally, while shaking her head back and forth slowly, she broke her silence and said, Yeah, these are his clothes, but he wasn't wearing these before I went to work. She stopped briefly to wipe away her tears and added, He was wearing his Spongebob pajamas, the ones he got for Christmas. He wore them every day. She then turned away as more tears started streaming down her cheeks. As this knowledge just Here it is. She's already been sentenced. She's in jail for life. 25 years to life, if I'm right. And this, this realizations are just starting to come to her. Yeah. And it's sad. It was moving. Yeah. That, that, that's just how it happened. Uh, You know, I I wanted some clarification on that and uh, she, she gave it to me. We'll return with part four, the appeal tomorrow night. David, thank you very much for your interview today. Appreciate it. And we're looking forward to the next two parts of the story. Yeah, me too. Thanks, John. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about this. Please do send us a review for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Until tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.